it's time to rampage and punish before you quick kick and snow job your stalker. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This episode is a little different from the others so far because it is the first episode where I'll be covering more than one comic book that came out on this day in 1987. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, these three books all came out on April 7th, and they are Superman number 7, The Punisher number 1, and G.I. Joe number 61. And that's the order in which I'm going to be covering them, starting with the Superman book, which if we're reading the Superman books from the FCTC era in order of publication, is the book that came out next after the last Superman comic I looked at, which was The Adventures of Superman number 429. This issue is a John Byrne production, and it features a cover by Byrne that shows Superman straining against an orange foot that is holding him down in a a pile of rubble. This is the last of the three books I bought at the Atias Flea Market in Sable, where my sister had that epic meltdown over the Magnet Fish game, and it will actually be the last Superman book that I cover on this series. I can't say that there was any reason for me dropping the book except for the fact that I wasn't a regular collector at this point and knew very little about comics collecting, so I just didn't pick this up anymore. And by the way, the next issue of this series, Superman number 8, was Mike Bailey's very first issue of the Burn Era Superman. So, a little bit of a connection there, I guess. Anyway, let's get to the issue. First of all, I love this cover. I love this cover in 1987, and I think it's not only because it's a cool-looking cover, but because when I was 10 years old, I saw this and said to myself that Superman looked like Christopher Reeve right there. But not in a creepy way that Gary Frank drew him back in the mid-2000s, in a way that he still looked like Superman, but at least on this cover, there was a Reeveness to him. And that was a big deal to me as a kid, because aside from the Super Friends, my impression of who Superman was, or what he looked like, was more or less defined by Christopher Reeve. So this was right up my alley. The book is cover dated July 1987, and it costs 75 cents. The credits are as follows. John Byrne, words and pictures. Carl Kiesel, inking. Tom Ziuko, coloring. John Costanza, lettering. Michael Carlin and Andrew Helfer, co-editors. And Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and it was spelled right this time. The title of our story is Rampage, and we open in a science lab where Lois Lane is visiting Dr. Kitty Faulkner and her fellow scientists, one of whom is named Dr. Moyers. Dr. Faulkner is showing Lois a new pollution-free fuel that they've been developing as part of a Daily Planet-sponsored contest, and Dr. Moyers protests that it's not ready for public display yet. Dr. Moyers explains what the experiments they have been doing consist of, which is mainly that they are tapping into the energy found in certain types of algae, and the problem that has resulted is the algae 
reproduce exponentially. Dr. Faulkner does not think it's a problem and thinks that the replication is what makes them a useful energy source. Dr. Moyers turns off some of the regulators and safety locks in order to make a point that the experiment is dangerous. Dr. Faulkner chastises him for it and then explains to Lois that yes, there is a danger, as there is with harnessing any energy. Then the lab is rocked by an explosion. Five minutes earlier at the Daily Planet, Clark is staring at the cover of the paper, which features a full-page shot of Wonder Woman, and is calling the Boston Globe leader to see if he can get in touch with Wonder Woman. Not so that he can interview her so much, but so that he can ask her out as Superman. But all of that will have to wait as he spots the explosion and then races across town, ignoring Alice from the mailroom on his way out, and arrives at the scene of the explosion. At the center of the explosion is a giant energy ball, and he does what he can to face it until he comes across a huge orange woman wearing the remains of a lab suit. Superman tries to talk to her, but she smacks him aside. She looks around, confused, starts punching some of the lab rubble, and when Superman grabs her to calm her down, she flips him over in a total wrestling move. They fight some more, and Superman Rannett manages to wrap her up in rubble from the lab before he comes across Dr. Moyers, who tells him that she's Lois Lane, who has, been, who has absorbed energy from the explosion and become a monster. Not only that, she's storing solar radiation in her body, and that means that her energy is building and building until it will eventually explode. Superman doesn't want to risk Lois's life and t tries to reason with the woman, but she flies off. He flies after her while Dr. Moyers finds someone in the rubble. Superman catches up to the woman and the fight, and they fight in midair. At Metropolis PD, Dan Turpin is complaining to Maggie Sawyer, but their arrangement is, but their argument is interrupted by someone who tells her that Superman is fighting a monster that pre the press has called Rampage, and that's what they're doing. Lots of fighting. Superman is trying not to hurt her too much because he still thinks she's Lois and he doesn't want to hurt someone he cares about. Then the SCU shows up and fires a bazooka at Rampage. Superman gets upset and screams, "No, don't! That's Lois Lane!" But Lois shows up to say that it's not her, it's actually Kitty Faulkner. Rampage smacks Superman and then takes him from behind, squeezing him. He first thinks that she's weakening him, and then realizes that his body is actually absorbing her energy. He decides that perhaps this is the best way to defeat her, and continues to absorb her energy to the point where Faulkner collapses, and he stands in the rubble, glowing. He then flies off and sees a thunderstorm in Kansas, which is where he winds up flying into a lightning bolt that is coming from a thundercloud, and does and that does the trick. Three days later in the hospital, Kitty Faulkner is recovering, and she and Lois wonder where Superman and Clark are. It's just then that Clark shows up to say hello, and basically says that if you asked him where Superman where he's been, you wouldn't believe him if he told you. Okay, so a point that I wanted to make, oddly enough, was how clear the digital version of this comic book looks on Comixology. I'm sure it was taken from the remastering or recoloring they did for the trades that were out a few years ago. And it's really clean and crisp, which doesn't always happen with some of these books. I have a number of Superman and Wonder Woman comics from about a year or two before this via Comixology, and the coloring could stand a touch-up because it has a weird quality to it, like something went wrong with the transfer to digital. Although I'm not sure the comic itself didn't look like really good back in the mid-1980s. It's very possible. Anyway, I do know that I read this more than I read any of the Adventures of Superman issues I owe back in 1987, and I think it was probably because I liked the story better. I mean, I do like those Adventures issues and I've, that I've read for this show, especially Ordway's art over Wolfman's pretty packed scripts, 
But at 9 or 10 years old, Superman basically battling the savage She-Hulk was way more up my alley, especially the way Byrne draws everything. And I'm conflicted as to at who Superman looks better at this point in time, Byrne or Ordway's. Personally, I think Ordway draws a better Clark Kent. Um, I've honestly loved Ordway's Clark. I've always loved Ordway's Clark because to me, at least, he seemed to do a great job at making him look distinct from Superman. Burns Clark has a tendency sometimes to look like Superman with glasses. I could be wrong on this. I mean, my personal favorite Superman artist of the post-crisis era is Dan Jurgens, especially with art uh, T-Bear or Brett Breeding inking him. But man, the art of this era as Superman is so strong. And there really isn't much to the story, to be honest, because so much of it is this big fight between Superman and Rampage, which goes on for longer than you'd think because Superman thinks it's Lois and therefore holds quite back quite a bit. I also love the ending of how while she has him in a hold, he realizes that he's basically absorbing energy and uses his head to turn her move against her by just holding on to her and taking all of it. I mean, it's perfect comic book science, especially discharging the whole thing with a lightning bolt. And if you're really cynical, you see a fight that Byrne has to wrap up in the last few pages and therefore finds a way to do it. But man, those last couple of pages are just gorgeous and they're really well done. The whole issue is, to be honest, and it's one of those comics that while um, while it's part of an ongoing story, is a great gateway for a first-time Superman reader, or at least someone who hasn't been reading any of the Burn stuff, because it's really just kind of like a one-and-done. In fact, there's part of me that felt as if I was watching an episode of Superman on TV. And, and looking at the way the issue is structured, it actually, that theory actually holds up pretty well. The first four pages with Lois at the lab and the explosion would be work for great for a cold open. Then you go to the credits and a commercial followed by Clark coming in on Clark on the Daily Planet on the phone. Then you go to a commercial following page 12, uh, I think it is, for some reason the pages aren't numbered in this comic, when Dr. Moyers tells Superman that the monster is Lois. Come back with Superman being all Lois. I can't fight Lois. And then the fight's on. Uh, you go to the commercial again with the first panel on page 20, 20 which is when the C SCU has uh, the bazooka. Uh, and then you come back with Maggie and Turpin getting ready to fight even some more and Superman screaming, no, that's Lois Lane, or, or something around there. And Lois finally showing up. Uh, then, then you do the big finale, you go to one more commercial, and you have the hospital scene followed by the credits. I mean, the story works that well. And I guess if I have one criticism, it's something that I've heard leveled at Burns Run, which is turning Lois Lane into someone who's just not very nice. Um, she's outright hostile toward Clark. And you don't see it until the very end of the issue. So I guess if he had toned it down, it would be a bit of clever banter. But Lois really comes off as kind of like a bitch, and way more than she probably should be. I mean, it's a little, like I said, it's a little mild here, but she snaps like right at Clark, and you have to kind of wonder what the heck he will ever see in her to get the two of them together. Ordway Stern, Jurgens, Louise Simonson would do a much better job with her down the road, and quite frankly, that's why I'm willing to give this a pass and say it's a minor gripe with what is a great comic book. And I'm going to take a short break, and then I'll be back with my next comic. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is Romance Comics Theater every episode. Dan, 
I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book and I'm back. My next comic is The Punisher number one. And before I start, I have to give credit where credit is due. Although I don't remember who gave to give credit for. I want to say it's Aaron Head Moss. Uh, or Henry or somebody, uh, somebody over at TTF, because while I was getting the comics together for the show, I posted something about how I was looking for the book and he sent me a CBR of it. So thank you very much. This issue is as the banner across the top of the cover says the first issue of an unlimited series. That cover, by the way, is by Klaus Jansen, and it shows the Punisher in full uniform on the fire escape of a seedy New York city hotel, holding a huge rocket launcher. And I'm not exaggerating. It's pretty much that thing that Radon Chong fires at the paddy wagon in Commando. And, well, it's late 80s, early 1990s Punisher, which was just an insane continuous action movie. I mean, if this is the very beginning of the era where Frank Castle basically became McBain. My friends, tonight we unveil my most diabolical creation. Swank. Ten times more addictive than marijuana. To human misery. (laughs) Nice to see you. So glad you could make it. Have a salmon puff. All right. That is one evil dude. It's just a movie, son. There's nobody that evil in real life. But anyway, our story is called Marching Powder. And our credits are as follows. Mike Barron's script, Klaus Jansen art and color, James Novak letters, Carl Potts editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We open on a street on the Lower East Side. Frank's narration says that it's 11 o'clock at night on a Monday. He's walking down the street wearing a trench coat and hat. Suddenly, a crackhead with a knife jumps out and demands his money. Frank's holds out his wallet, and the junkie stabs him and runs away. But Frank's not hurt because he's wearing Kevlar. He watches the crackhead make his way to a house where he buys some drugs. Frank goes to a dumpster near the building and retrieves a box he dropped there two days earlier. What's in it? Weapons. And on page three, there is a splash of him in full Punisher garb with the weapons attached. He fires a rocket into the building and then gets up onto the fire escape, more or less the scene from the cover. Once inside the building, the drug dealers and thugs yell, Get him! And he responds by shooting the place up. He leaves one alive and questions him. The guy who's a heavy accent, I think is supposed to be Caribbean, gives him the name of an the name of an owner, of the club owner, of the building owner, Wilfrey Sobel. 
The Punisher leaves the building and dumps the kilo of coke he found into the East River, and then he returns to his warehouse in Jersey to record in his war journal. This, he seem, it seems, is part of an ongoing investigation into some cocaine trafficking based on information he got from a man named Ares, who's now dead. And we see Ares in a flashback scene, a flashback to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. Frank is there. He's looking at the names on the wall when Ares comes up to him and gives him some information about a name that's on the wall, which is Curtis Hoyle. Curtis Hoyle, it seems, is not dead. And in fact, he came to see Ayers the previous week to offer him a job flying cocaine into the country. It seems that Hoyle is a big man in a drug running operation, and that's when we shift to the present, where Frank mentions that Ayers supposedly killed himself, and then gets ready for some formal event, or at least he goes out dressed up wearing a tux and diamond-tipped fingernails. The location is a club named the Pink Lady, and Frank is going undercover to get on the inside as a way to take down Hoyle. He finds Wilfrey and solicits a job as a way to pit them against Hoyle, but they don't fall for it, and then they tie him up and torture him through electroshock. In true action movie fashion, the torturer taunts Frank, not realizing that he's under, untied his bonds, and then is met with both Frank's hand on his throat and the wires of the electrical shock device to his neck. Frank makes his way through the building in his underwear. He goes after Wilfrey, and the guy asks Frank, using Frank's undercover name of Messina, what he wants. Realizing that his cover isn't totally blown, Frank says he wants the job the guy had been promised by a Bolivian named the General. Wilfrey says that he'll give Frank the 250k in cash that he has, as well as his New York operations. Frank says, okay. Wilfrey tosses out the bag and tries to shoot Frank when he goes for it, but Frank uses a random thug as a human shield and then shoots Wilfrey dead. Frank and a woman Wilfrey was sleeping with are the only ones left. He tells her to get dressed, and they grab the 250k plus what was in the safe and take off. He takes her back to a hotel, he gives her money, and he puts her on a plane elsewhere. Then he goes to a payphone and gets in touch with the general, saying that he's Wilfrey's replacement. The last scene is Frank sitting on a park bench in Central Park when someone walks up to him. It's Hoyle, and it's time for them to do business. Next up, Bolivia. You know, I'm not a huge Punisher guy. I had a few issues here and there in the 90s when I started collecting comics. I had a few random Daredevil issues from the Frank Miller run where he shows up. And I have his first appearance in an essential Amazing Spider-Man collection. But that's about it. However, I have to say that I went into this comic thinking that this was going to be an action flick, and man, that's exactly what I got. It's kind of an amped up version of a show like The Equalizer, which was on CBS at the time, and this approach seems to owe something to stories about mid-80s New York City and people such as Bernard, Bernard Goetz, who had gained notoriety for shooting four muggers on a New York City subway and claimed self-defense. Getz was seen as a hero by a number of people, and I can see the influence of something like that on the Punisher of this time, because he's walking down the streets that were very much the dirty New York City streets that a lot of people I knew thought of when we heard, well, the streets of New York City. Plus, he takes out a guy who's basically a crackhead at the very beginning, which establishes him as a street-level hero and someone who's going to take on the fears that we all had about walking the streets of New York at night at the time. But there's something bigger here, a drug-running operation that's coming out of Bolivia, a country that during the 1980s was just as infamous as Colombia for its drug cartels. 
So this comic is very much of a time in terms of its real-world context, as well as its, as its story. I don't think this would play in a modern-day comic book. I don't say that from a politically correct sort of standpoint. I just see this as a stand, see this as from a standpoint of these 1980s-era stories not really being told as much in comics, even in Punisher comics anymore. And yet, I still had a ball reading it. Frank has a bit of Batman about him. He plans ahead for everything and also works out all the angles of a case. The reason he goes after the crackhead at the beginning of the issue is because he's after the bigger fish. And the reason he goes after Wilfrey is because he's after an even bigger fish. In fact, Jim Starlin around this time would write an issue of Batman where Robin and Nightwing took down a drug operation and the whole idea of busting the bigger guy was part of it. Drug runners were great 1980s street-level villains. Not so much today, since while cocaine and other illegal drugs are still an issue, people abuse prescription drugs at a much higher rate than they do illegal drugs. Although I kind of wonder what it would be like to see if Batman, Green Arrow, The Punisher, any of these street-level heroes of this vintage, uh, if they did a story centered around the opioid crisis as opposed to sort of the cocaine or crack epidemic. Anyway, Baron's writing is tight. It's full of action. It establishes Frank as a no-nonsense character, and it gets a setup for something bigger in the next issue. And Jansen's art's really freaking good. And I'm hot and cold on Klaus Jansen. I always enjoyed his inking of Frank Miller on Daredevil and on The Dark Knight Returns, but his inking of other people can leave me really cold. For instance, he inked Jim Aparo at some point in the 90s on Batman, and it was just not very good. And it was 90s Aparo, which was kind of lacking in quality anyway, but I mean, it just, it, I don't know. It just, it, it didn't, it, it didn't sit well with me when I was, when I was reading it, and even going back and reading it now, when I see nineties Aparo with Jansen's inks, it just doesn't hold up for me. Um, with this issue though, I don't know if it's because he also inked and colored it. I don't know if I was reading it from a scan of the original comic instead of some sort of me remastered trade paperback or, or digital copy, but it fits the story. It fits the character incredibly, incredibly well. Jansen's got a good feel for the action. He pays attention to some of the details of a scene to make it dynamic. For example, when Frank kills Winfrey, he shoots him and we see a panel of Winfrey falling face first onto his desk with a thump and all of the papers on the desk just fly into the air as, if, as and a lamp is knocked over, you know, so it's just sort of kind of chaos that happens. It's really well done. A few pages earlier, when he takes out one of the guys in the torture room, it's done in a sequence of nine panels on a page, some large, some small, and it shows that Jansen isn't afraid to put action into a sequence instead of drawing characters in a series of poses. His moment at the Vietnam War Memorial is done very well as well, with both close-ups and wide shots. And when he's in New York on the bench at the end of a book, we get a nice panel of Frank casually reading the paper while the snow falls. It's little touches like this in moments that are supposed to be quiet that make this comic book feel real, even though the character certainly is not. And I think it's no wonder I liked it when I was younger and bought the next three issues. Oh, one last thing. I remember buying this at Greaves Stationery in Saville, which is one of two stationery stores that also sold comics. So they were my newsstands. And uh, I would go to them if the, my LCS had sold out of a comic or I missed an issue, just as I've said before. My friend Tom Hackett, who I've already mentioned before, had already bought this. And since we were, in our, we were really full into our Schwarzenegger fandom by then, he told me that I should go out and I should get it. And, and I remember two things he mentioned. First, the first, that it was the fact of the first... In, an unlimited series. I mean, that was important for some reason. Uh, the second, the fact that 
on page five of the comic when Frank's shooting up the crack house, he's firing an Uzi because it's the 80s and everybody had Uzis. But the sound effects, buda 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 buda. He thought that was a way more realistic a machine gun sound effect than one we'd ever seen, and that sold him on the series. So did the next issue, which we both loved at the time, but that's for a future episode. Right now, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be back with the last of my three comics, G.I. Joe, number 61. The end of the world is approaching. Soon the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon, and the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time. The only thing standing in their way is the Justice League. In 2005... Uh, wait a second. Are, are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time. Let's just be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much. Okay, good. Got that. All right. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice. Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults. And now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast and continues into Supermates, the Idol Head of Diabolu podcast, Views from the Longbox, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, the Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn, J.L. May. 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review the League's toughest battle. The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast, located at fireandwaterpodcast.com. G.I. Joe number 61 came out on April 7, 1987 as well. It had a cover price of $1. The cover is by Mike Zeck and Bob McLeod. It features Stalker, Stalker, Snowjob, and Quick Kick in a searchlight or spotlight against a wall firing back at somebody who's firing at them. And Snowjob is holding a wounded Quick Kick. It is one of my all-time favorite Mike Zeck G.I. Joe covers. And one that I had him sign a few years ago at Baltimore Comic Con, uh, in addition to having Larry Hama sign it back in 2012. It's dynamic, it's action filled, it features three very familiar characters, and they're in serious trouble. If you're a fan of G.I. Joe, you picked this comic up because you wanted to know what the heck was going on. Our story is beginnings and endings. And our credits are as follows. Larry Hama script, Marshall Rogers storytelling, Danny Boulin finishes, Joe Rosen letters, B. Sharon colors, Bob Harris editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. 
We open in the basement of an undisclosed military base. Hawk is presenting a mission to stalker Quick Kick Outback and Snowjob. A journalist named Devlin Winchill has been captured and detained in the Eastern Bloc nation of Barovia. The four Joes are to go and under the four Joes are to go in under deep cover to rescue him. In fact, it's such deep cover that if they are captured, it's the policy of Hawk and anyone in charge to deny that mission's existence. They're to meet up with a contact in the capital of Krognitz with a guy named Spigu who will lead them to Winchell. Meanwhile, the next day in Denver, Billy tells Cobra Commander Raptor and Fred that he remembers throwing, knowing karate and fighting as part of an anti-Cobra underground. Billy demonstrates some of these skills by disarming Fred and Raptor, and before he leaves, tells the men not to worry. He'll never actually betray his father, so their secret's safe with him. He then heads to the dojo we'd seen in an earlier issue to seek the Blind Master. He instead sees the G.I. Joe ninja known as Jinx. He tells her that he won't betray his father, and she's okay with that and is willing to help teach him. In Barovia, the four Joes meet up with Spigu, who gives them intelligence on where Winchell is being kept, as well as weapons that can't be traced back to anyone in the U.S. Back at Fred's garage, Cobra Commander, having watched his son leave, takes off his armored helmet and tells Fred and Raptor that he's having second thoughts about what he's been doing and believes that it's time to hang it up. He thinks that if he can start over and be honest, he can win back Billy's respect. Fred objects, saying, I had plastic surgery and became a Fred clone for you. I gave up my past for the Cobra. You owe me more than this. You owe me. And he shoots Cobra Commander in the back. He then picks up the helmet and says, Great thing about this armor. Could be anybody inside. In Barovia, the Joes, dressed all in black, raid the prison where Winchell is kept, except they find all the cells empty. Stalker then turns to a guard they have captured and asks where Winchell is. The guard reveals that Winchell is in Washington. He was exchanged for two Barovian spies that morning, and the trade was so hush-hush that it was never relayed back to the Joes. Just then, other prison guards find evidence of the break-in and hit the general alarm. Quick Kick and Snowjob are shot in the ensuing firefight, and the Joes manage to make it to the pickup truck they came in with, which is driven by Spigu, who speeds out of there. They bust through a roadblock and head to an alley, which buys them enough time for Stalker to tell Outback to get himself out of there and back to the States to warn Hawk. Stalker is going to stay behind with his two injured men, and this may be their only chance. Outback takes off into the sewers, Spigu blows up the truck along with himself, and in the end, the remaining Joes are captured. Back at the Joe's makeshift headquarters, the team watches a news report about the captured Joe's, and they see that the government has denied any involvement with the mission, which is what we knew would happen from the beginning of the issue. Hawk then corroborates this by saying that there will be no rescue attempt, and anyone who tries a rescue attempt will be disowned like the, jo- like the Joe's who have been captured have been. Then there's a note that the story continues in G.I. Joe Special Missions number 6. In my last G.I. Joe comic review, which was the Tom McFarlane drawn issue, I mentioned how Brian Cronin in the Comic Book Legends Reveal column over on CBR wrote about how McFarlane was scheduled to draw this issue and actually did turn pages in, but they were rejected because they didn't fit the style of the comic. So after his one issue, which was a fill-in story anyway, and you can tell because this issue was more or less picks up where it left off two issues ago, that was it. Consequently, Cronin mentioned that the Marshall Rogers art was pretty rushed, and I will say that it looks like it, especially since I'm not a f- I'm a fan of Marshall Rogers based on his work on Detective Comics in the 70s. 
But it's not terrible. I mean, there is a Delta Force Navy SEALs vibe to the secret rescue mission that goes wrong. And overall, the art's serviceable in a way that other artists on a book like this may not have been. And that's all I'll say about the art anyway, because I want to get to the story. Now, while I did own issue 59, I would have to go back and buy issue 60. It was this issue, number 61, that got me buying G.I. Joe regularly, specifically this storyline. First, I thought that the scene where Cobra Commander was killed was flat out awesome, and I remember reading it aloud when talking about the comic to my friends. Second, Hackett told me about this issue as well and mentioned the whole thing with the three Joes being captured at the end, so I was immediately intrigued and went to the comic store and bought it. Thirty years later, this comic book does not disappoint. Hama gets the opportunity to spotlight a few characters that haven't been the center of attention for a while. Plus, he's not beholden to advertising a new toy, so he gets the chance to write this one out like he probably wants to and sticks pretty close to the type of, this type of story. After we get the advancement of the Cobra Commander stuff, we get this mission in Barovia, which is one of those fake countries that stands in for whatever country we happen to be having tensions with at the time. For the sake of this one, it's obviously the Soviet Union or one of the Soviet-controlled Eastern Bloc countries that were still in existence in the 1980s in that way. We have an asset, the asset needs extraction, a contact who Hawk swears he can vouch for, etc., etc. And then we have something go terribly wrong with the knowledge that each of those guys is expendable. It's well-paced with Hama wasting no time getting us to the rescue operation. And since it's ho- so hush-hush, he also doesn't have the team use any of the advanced weaponry that we usually associate with the Joes. Logically, they have to use those unmarked and untraceable weapons, although illogically, they're more or less wearing their Joe clothes under their disguises. But hey, it's a comic book, right? Anyway, I like how Stalker says that he's the leader of the team because and because of that, he'll stay behind with the wounded. And he tells Outback to get out of there. It speaks to a consistency with his character, as he's always been a leader of sorts, and from what I have read, has been pretty selfless in the past. Perhaps even this is his, t- his taking lessons and learning by seeing the selflessness of his fellow soldiers. I seem to remember issue 26, where he talks about Tommy, Storm Shadow, risking his life to save Snake Eyes when the latter got shot in Vietnam. Anyway, the plot is simple, and it's because, well, this sets up a longer storyline that will end, that will climax in issue 66, which is my last issue, pretty much, uh, with the exception of one later on, but has sort of an epilogue in 67, which I might briefly cover when I get up to issue 66, but... For this, for the start of the storyline, we need two things to happen. We need the mission to go wrong. We need these guys to get captured. There needs to be nothing more. Hammond knows that, and he pulls it off so well. Our guys wind up outmatched and outgunned, and further complicating things is that edict that Hawk has passed down from his superiors, and especially at the end, which is supposed to be surprising to the team and the reader, even though in the back of our minds we know that's not going to happen. And so there you go. Three comics, three reviews. I'm going to skip my usual onion-on-my-belt section of nostalgic memories for this episode, and I'll be back on April 14th with the Transformers number 30. So until then, please go to the show notes to the Facebook page or email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com if you have any, uh, if you want to say something, ask me something, or give me any sort of feedback. Uh, Don't forget to support TTF through the Amazon.com link. And I will be back in about a week. So until then, thanks for listening and take care.